Let's pray together this morning before, we, before I share. Lord, I pray that this morning that my, my words that come from my mouth would be yours, that, that anything that's of me would just fall on deaf ears and it, would, it wouldn't go anywhere, but, but God, that your word would, would root itself in, in each of our hearts and our minds and our souls, that you would, that you would speak to us, that you would help us to, to be encouraged, that you, would, that you would begin to fill in us a, a desire to walk in your ways, that we'd be able to celebrate uh, the fact that you are the King of Kings. So, Lord, this morning we, we praise your name and we thank you for who you are, Jesus. Amen. Well, in 1957, a Swedish historical fantasy movie called The Seventh Seal, some of you may uh, be familiar with that particular movie, but uh, in 1957, this movie was released. This film, though, is considered to be one of the greatest films of all time, where the premise of this movie is built around the story of this medieval knight named Antonius. Then throughout the movie, Antonius plays a game of chess with the angel of death. Antonius believes that as long as he continues to play chess against the angel of death, that he can survive and live as long as the game continues. Now throughout this film, the angel of death makes a series of moves on the night, trying to trap Antonius, ultimately trying to seal death's victory. Finally, in the last scene of the movie, the angel of death makes a move on the chessboard looks at the knight and declares, checkmate. The movie ends in this dramatic moment, leaving, it, leaving the, the viewer, leaving us to conclude that Antonius has lost and death has won. Except the problem with this particular conclusion was revealed when legendary chess master Bobby Fischer watched this movie when it first was released. And he stood up in the theater after the, the curtains closed and, and he stood up and asked his friend, why is Antonius giving up? Doesn't he see it? Doesn't he see the pieces on the board? The king has one more move. He can win. The king has one more move. These words resonate loudly when we understand the gospel story, don't they? The king has one more move. When death seems to have won, the king still has one more move. For right now, for us, Christmas is a time where we celebrate that the king has arrived. And he's beginning to move pieces on the chessboard as he prepares for his one last triumphant victory. Where the good news of Jesus is that death hasn't won, that humanity hasn't been defeated, and that instead the king has one more move to defeat Satan and death. Over the last week and this week and next week, we've been journeying through the first few chapters of the book of Daniel as we've been walking through the Armor of God series. This morning, we'll be exploring Daniel chapter 3, which takes place anywhere between 7 and 20 years after the first two chapters of Daniel. We read at the end of chapter 2 that Daniel has correctly interpreted and, and assessed what, king, what the King Nebuchadnezzar's dream was. And at the end of chapter 3, the, uh, the, the king Nebuchadnezzar, he, he, he says, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. But in Daniel, and then if we fast forward a couple years, Daniel chapter 3, we see these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
these three Hebrew men, these prisoners of war, they had been indoctrinated into the Babylonian way of life. They were once again in a situation, whether it was following, following the, the, the ways of Babylon, following the king, or whether, or whether or not to choose the God of Israel. After Babylon, after, let me, try, let me start that again. After, at the end of chapter 2, after this, this dream has been interpreted, King Nebuchadnezzar makes this statement. He says, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. After this declaration, though, it becomes very obvious pretty quickly that, that his enthusiasm for the God of Israel has weaned pretty significantly. Where we read in the first couple of verses in chapter 3 that the dream that he had in chapter 1 and 2 was about to manifest itself into a physical reality, given it has a few alterations with a few Babylonian flares attached to it. Instead of the statue being made up of various materials, instead, the dream, like the dream he had was, instead he decides the king is, you know, the thing he liked best about this particular, this particular statue was the gold, particularly the fact that because the gold head represented Babylon. And he said, you know what, let's just make the whole thing gold. And so out of this decision that he makes, that, that Nebuchadnezzar makes this, this statue out of, out of gold, and he says the first thing the first thing that he's doing here is rejecting the notion that, that there's going to be other kingdoms, there's going to be other nations that are going to come along and, and, and be superior to Babylon. He's declaring to the world that, that Babylon is the greatest. This statue then becomes a rejection of the earlier interpretation of Daniel and instead highlights the parts that appeal to Nebuchadnezzar's own nationalistic ego making sure that everyone knows that Babylon is the greatest and no other kingdoms can compare. Secondly, if we remember from last week that the main point of the dream had very little to do with Babylon, had very little to do with Persia or, or Greece or Rome, but that the main point of, of Nebuchadnezzar's dream was that the kingdom of heaven was being established on earth and that it was superior to any other kingdom. The fact that Nebuchadnezzar, though, makes this statue is a direct attack towards the God of Israel. Because most scholars believe that the statue that, that was built was a representation of one of the Babylonian pagan gods, Nebo. The god, in, the god Nebo is, is where the name Nebuchadnezzar originated from. See, if we, if we, the entomology of the name Nebuchadnezzar, if we were actually to pull apart that name Nebuchadnezzar, we would see the first four letters, N-E-B-U, from Nebuchadnezzar, is actually a reference to Nebo. And Kadnezzar means protect the crown. So Nebuchadnezzar actually means Nebo protects the crown. So Nebo, though, was the, in Babylon was known as the god of wisdom and given credit for the invention of writing and presided over the department of knowledge. This idol or this statue that Nebuchadnezzar built reflected much of what Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar valued. This specific statue wasn't just a symbol of the value that Babylonians put on, on knowledge and wisdom. This statue was also a symbol of the king who had built it. And it was an outright rejection of the prophecy that the God of Israel had given him years before the, in the dream. It's through this statue that Nebuchadnezzar has now entwined himself with the paganistic worship of Babylon. If you honor Nebo, 
you honor Nebuchadnezzar. If you dishonor Nebo, you also dishonor Nebuchadnezzar. And essentially what happens is Nebuchadnezzar has now established this, this official state religion where he's a part of it. Anyone who didn't worship the statue of Nebu would be essentially writing their own death sentence. So in preparation for this grand new announcement of this new state religion, the king invites all of the state officials, which includes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He arranges the, the Babylonian Philharmonic Orchestra and invites them into the spectacle and gives them instructions in, in Daniel chapter 3, verse 6. Imagine the auditorium, and he stands at the front and says, whoever, when the music plays, whoever does not fall down and worship the statue that I have just erected, they're going to be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. How's that for incentive? Now, presumably, the, the three main characters of this chapter, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they've already resolved to say, you know what, we're not going to bow to this. We're not going to bow to this idol. Instead, they've, they've chosen to remain loyal to the God of Israel and continue to live under the premise that God is in control. That whatever happens, that God would be leading it. That God would be directing the next steps after this. As a result, these three men are brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, though, has no other recourse. These, these men have, have publicly undermined the king and his rule. They've rejected his demands and rejected this idol that he's built as well. Nebuchadnezzar really has no choice at this point. He can't let this type of subordination go unpunished. But Nebuchadnezzar, in his kindness, gives them a second chance and says, if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. He's actually giving them a second chance. So he gave the initial decree in front of everyone, but so he invited these three guys to come forward, and he's saying, I'm going to give you instructions. Maybe you didn't understand what I'm saying to you. I'm giving you a second chance to renounce your heresy. I'm giving you a chance to repent of, of this dishonor. Instead, I think it would be wise of you to give honor to the pagan gods. In fact, I would think it would be great if you could pledge your loyalty to me, your king. But then Nebuchadnezzar concludes in verse 15 and says, if you don't do this, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Essentially, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, guys, you think your God is in control? No, I'm in control. And the gauntlet has been thrown down, and it's time for a showdown. This confrontation isn't actually all that much different than most tyrants who perceive a threat to their authority, is it? Where we can read stories of persecuted Christians around the world throughout history who have been alienated, beaten, killed because of their alignment with Jesus. These three Hebrew men are no different. They're facing similar persecution because of their alignment with God too. But instead of renouncing their faith, like Nebuchadnezzar was expecting, they double down on their actions in verse 16 and 17, and they say, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. 
If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is actually able to, to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. And so these three men stand in front of the king, standing at the face of death. And they make, these, they make this very strong declaration to the king with their rejection. The first is that they will not be worshiping this God. They will not worship him now, not ever. Not on a boat, not with a goat. We'll not worship these gods here or there. We won't worship them anywhere. The second thing they're telling Nebuchadnezzar, though, is that unlike Sam, I am's friend from Green Eggs and Ham, these three men were willing to die rather than to try that. Instead, they stuck together and they maintained their resolve to refuse the king's demands. Lastly, there's something really subtle that's happening here in the language that the English translation doesn't really catch. Verse 16 and 17, these men, they use the word we. Verse 16, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Verse 17, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. The word we in the Hebrew is the word anakna. It's only used four times in the entire Old Testament, and it's used twice here. Because they're using this word anakna, they're creating this distinction between what their responsibilities are on this matter, saying, you know, we have some things that we need to, we have to be, we have some pieces that we need to be faithful to here. But they're also saying there's another piece here. They're making it very clear that the other side of this is that, that the issue that you have isn't actually with us, Nebuchadnezzar. The issue that we have is with, the issue you have is actually with the God of Israel. We'll own our peace. We'll be faithful to this. And we're going to say, no, we're not following this. But the larger issue that you have here, Nebuchadnezzar, is with God. And so their response to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's challenge, which God can, which God can, can, can save you, their response is, bring it on. Throw us in and let's find out. But the men add this caveat in verse 18. But even if he does not, we want you to know that, you will not serve, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They're saying, you can't intimidate us, Nebuchadnezzar. You can't scare us into giving up on the God of Israel. These three men realized that even if they died in the furnace, it wouldn't change the fact that the God of Israel was still in control and they wouldn't be deterred by the outcome, especially an outcome that they probably wouldn't enjoy. Even if God decided not to rescue them from the furnace, they had resolved to remain faithful to God, even if the outcome was not desirable. They were willing to walk through it. At this point then, Nebuchadnezzar, in front of his officials, these three men defying and rejecting Nebuchadnezzar's generous second offer. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar really has no alternative. He can't let his subordinates undermine him in this way. So he condemns them to death. He says, bind their arms, put them in clothes, and throw them in the fire. The reason he has them bound so they can't escape, the reason he puts clothes on them so to, to amplify the heat even more so they burn even faster. He increases the heat seven times. He carries in the, 
They had the guards to carry them in. The guards die. They incinerate because of, the, because of the heat. But these three men are thrown in like logs on a fire. And what Nebuchadnezzar discovers is that the real king has one more move. That Nebuchadnezzar has made his final move. He thinks that he, has, he is in checkmate. But the match isn't over yet. The real king is about to make his move. And we see this throughout Scripture. Adam and Eve in Eden, captured in sin. Satan thought he trapped humanity and that he had won. But the king had one more move. Pharaoh thought that he had trapped the Israelites as they escaped from Egypt. But the king had one more move. David tried to cover up his sin and hide it from God and hide it from others. But the king had one more move. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace, but the king had one more move. Nebuchadnezzar looked into the furnace and saw that instead of three men in the fire, but that now that there was a fourth person in the flames, and that they actually weren't on fire at all, but instead they were just walking around unharmed by the fire. How could this be? And he calls these men out, out of the fire. And the only thing that was different about them was that the fire, was that the fire had burned the ropes that had restrained them, but everything else was unharmed. They didn't even smell like smoke. There was no singed eyebrows or whiskers. There was the little threads that hang from their clothes. They were, it was untouched. They were completely unharmed. The king had one more move. The condemnation that was placed on these three men was replaced with salvation. And we see this same reality at the heart of the gospel, that the king has one more move. That in spite of humanity's constant attempts to reject God, constant attempts to disobey and dishonor through our actions, the king still has one more move. John chapter 3 verse 17 tells us that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. The king sent his son to die so that we wouldn't have to. Instead of us dying in our condemnation, Jesus stands with us and actually stands in our place so that we can be unaffected by the condemnation that we deserve in the same way that he stood with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Instead, we can experience the liberation that the one true king extends to each of us. What we see from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that as they strapped on the shoes of peace, is that they were unmoved amongst the chaos and the condemnation and circumstances that they were faced with. They were un- Let me say that again. They were unmoved amongst the chaos. They were unmoved amidst the condemnation. They were unmoved amidst their circumstances because they believed that the king still had one more move. What are the things in your life that you need to remind yourself where the king has one more move? What chaos is happening in your life that you need to hold on to the hope that the king has one more move? What condemnation are you living in today? 
where you need to remind yourself that the king has one more move, that salvation can be yours through Jesus Christ. What's happening in your circumstances, in your today, in your right now, where you need one more move from the king? Because wherever there isn't peace in our mind, in our relationships, in our circumstances, it's certain that Satan is at work doing something. Where Satan is manipulating situations, just lurking in the shadows, distracting us through busyness, stirring up tensions in our relationships or in our minds, stirring up turmoil in our conversations with our interactions with others and our families or with our friends or our neighbors. And we can't always control the chaotic circumstances that might get thrown our way. We can't predict those things. We can't, we can't control the relational struggles that we might have to walk through. Certainly for many of us, if, we had, if I had asked you, what do you think 2020 would have in store for us? None of us would be able to predict the type of situations and circumstances that you went through this year. And I'm not even talking about the coronavirus. Unexpected deaths, pregnancies, marriages, illnesses, job situations, financial loss, schooling at home. Admittedly, as the lead pastor of Thornhill, I, I wasn't expecting that we would close our doors for six months in the first year of me leading the church. That's not how you want to write up your start. That's not something that they teach you or equip you for, for in Bible college either. Certainly, I think for most of us, we have more questions than answers, and it, just, and it just elevates our anxiety, and I'm sure most of us still do. And I know for most of us, all of us, we all have insecurities. We all have questions, and we all have thoughts about ourselves, how, questions about how other people are perceiving us. Satan also knows what those insecurities are. And there are times where, where those insecurities, they just get fed over and over again, and, and they, just, they just bounce around in our minds and our hearts. But here's the thing. Just like most of us know what our insecurities are, we, have, we all have blind spots that, that we also get poked at. We all have shortcomings. We all experience the chaotic circumstances of life and struggle with sin in our life. We know those things. Satan does too. But more importantly, Jesus does as well. He is not unaware of our shortcomings. He is not unaware of our limitations. He's not unaware of our sin. He's not unaware of our, of our insecurities. Unfortunately, in the midst of chaos, though, and condemnation and circumstances, you and I, we often try to manufacture our own shoes of peace. You know, I'll just, I'll just do it myself. And so we try to busy ourselves with all kinds of things, don't we? Things that we deem as important and critical. But in actuality, we spend more time just spinning our wheels on stuff that really isn't all that important. I think one of the reasons why we do that is because we recognize, I can't control this situation over here but I can control this over here. So I'm going to just deal with these little things over here. And so we end up distracting ourselves with things that aren't really addressing this particular larger issue because it's either easier 
or it's just easier to escape, or it's, and it's easier to ignore that thing over there. And it becomes this momentary reprieve from the chaos or the condemnation or the circumstances that really we need to address. For the most of us, busyness isn't necessarily bad or sinful. It's just stuff that we add to our plate just to, because we've convinced that if we, just, if we empty these, these other areas of our plate, then finally we can address this larger thing. You know what I found, though? As soon as we deal with the small stuff here, we never get a chance to focus on the big stuff. There's always more little stuff that we have to deal with. It just gets, there's just more that gets added to it. And so we're just constantly dealing with all this other little stuff. Meanwhile, we have these, this growing problem over here that we really need to spend some time with. Often what happens then is as we've neglected this area because we're busy, miss, we're, we're busy with all the other small stuff, is that we actually miss out on the blessing that God wants to give us. We miss out on the blessing that God wants to do in us and through us as we walk through these, these things. Thankfully, thankfully though, the only, thing better than, <clears throat> the only thing better than walking in the shoes of peace that we manufacture, as I've said, is, is walking through the shoes of peace that Jesus makes. Because that's the best way to identify whether we are wearing the shoes of peace that Jesus gives us is, is how we respond in those circumstances that we walk through, not how well we avoid them. How do we respond to the chaos? How do we respond to the condemnation? How do we walk through those things wearing the shoes of, of peace? Because peace is not the absence of chaos. It's not the absence of circumstances. It's not the absence of condemnation. That's always going to exist. We live in a broken world. We will always have chaos. We'll always, experience, always have condemnation pushed on us. We'll always have circumstances that pull us in different directions. Peace, though, is a response to the chaos. Peace is a response to condemnation. Peace is is a response to our circumstances. Peace is measured around the backdrop of all the things that swirl around us. When instability exists, we remain steadfast. When disappointment and confusion and condemnation are near, we are still capable of walking with Jesus through it, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. So how do we respond to the chaos, the circumstances, and condemnation in a way that reflects Jesus. I'm going to give us four ways. One, keep our eyes on Jesus. Two, put our trust in the King. Three, rest in peace. Four, get ready. Keep our eyes on Jesus. As hard as Nebuchadnezzar tried, he couldn't pull Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's eyes off of God. He tried threats. He tried accusations. He tried everything. He tried threat of death. He, they would not keep their eyes off of God. They were totally transfixed on Him. This Christmas season for us is a perfect time for us to refocus our eyes on Jesus. There are lots of things to distract us this time of year, probably more so than others. 
But whatever we are going through, we keep our eyes on Jesus. Christmas becomes this reminder for us to keep our eyes on Jesus. Two, put our trust in the king. After Nebuchadnezzar witnessed this final move from the king, the king of kings, and realized that he was in checkmate, he responds by saying, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's commands and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. I mean, that's great. Yes, he got it. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other god can save in this way. Well, he's mostly there. I mean, (laughs) he's got a little work to do, but uh, we're all a work in progress, I guess. But the part I think Nebuchadnezzar recognizes here was their trust. That in the face of attack, in the face of circumstances, they kept their trust in the true king. He alone is worthy of our trust. So we keep our eyes on Jesus We put our trust in the king. We rest in peace. Now, I mentioned earlier that oftentimes, we we often, in the midst of chaos and condemnation and and circumstances, we we just like to busy ourselves with all kinds of stuff. And often, that's just window dressing. It's just us trying to control something. It's just trying to put a band-aid on a bleeding artery. But when we rest with Jesus through prayer, through reading his word, That as we do that, we actually put on the shoes of peace. We're strapping on those shoes of peace because we're beginning to refocus our perspective from ourselves. We're beginning to refocus our perspective from our circumstances and our situations and refocus ourselves onto Jesus and how we can keep his will our priority rather than our own. Rest has this way of, has this divine way of helping us discern what Jesus is inviting us into. Rest also helps us strengthen, helps strengthen us as we walk into that invitation and the strength is of Jesus as we do it. That as we walk through with all that big stuff, rather than avoid it and deal with all the small stuff, we actually walk through the big stuff because we know that Jesus has our hands and he's walking through it. We've strapped on the shoes of peace as we walk through that stuff. The last thing that we can do, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up as well. The last thing that we can do to respond to chaos to respond to our circumstances, to respond in our condemnation in a way that reflects Jesus, is get ready. Be ready. I imagine that when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego woke up that morning or were beginning to think through what this year, that year was going to have in store for them, they likely didn't know they had a one-way ticket to the smoking section in the furnace room. And I'm not talking about a nightclub in Babylon. None of us, though, have any idea of what next year has in store for us. No one knows what 2021 is going to look like except Jesus. But for these three guys, they were ready. They had practiced faithfulness their whole lives. So when the time came, so when the test came, when they saw the big stuff, they were ready for it. They had been keeping their eyes on God the whole time. They had been putting their trust in the King. And they've been resting in that peace. 
for some of us next year, 2021, it actually may be more challenging next year than this year, as hard as that is to imagine. But we can be ready for it simply by doing what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Because regardless of what we go through next year, we can have peace knowing that the king still has one more move. All he is requiring of us is to strap on those shoes of peace and walk faithfully with our eyes on Jesus the same way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for the time to be able to, to study your word. And Lord, now as we, as we consider what is our response to that, what is, how do we respond to these, these words? How do we respond to, to the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? How do we respond to the reality that you have one more move to make in our lives? Lord, would you give us boldness? Would you give us courage? Would you give us your peace, Jesus? Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.